0: Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Nuran Alajba. Good evening. In our book, we dedicate several chapters to discussing the differences in training between physicians and non-physician practitioners. One of the most important elements of physician training is learning how to create a differential diagnosis, which is a list of all the possible causes of a patient's symptoms. Today, we are joined by Dr. Mercy Hilton. She's a pediatric emergency medicine physician, and she's an author and a patient advocate. She's here to discuss why physician training is so important. Dr. Hilton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Mercy, can you start us out by just explaining a little bit about your background and training as a physician? Before I went to medical school, I actually went to pharmacy school and I was a pharmacist. I
1: practiced as a pharmacist for all four years of medical school. And I think it gave me a really great background going into medical school. And then I went to the University of Oklahoma for medical school. I graduated in 2001. So this is my 20 year anniversary of being a physician. (laughs) And things have changed so much in the last 20 years. Then I was fortunate enough to match into the combined emergency medicine and pediatrics program at the University of Indiana or Indiana University. And at the time that I matched, there were only two programs in the country with this combined training. And now there's only three. And each of these programs only take two candidates each year. So I, when I interviewed in India, I, w- I fell in love with the city and the program. So I spent five years in residency doing my combined training. So I'm
0: board certified in general emergency medicine and in general pediatrics. So there's a couple ways that you can become a pediatric emergency medicine physician, I understand. So you were in a combined program and there's a few of those, but other people either go first emergency medicine and then do a pediatric fellowship or do it the opposite way, right? That's right. So the ABMS subspecialty designation
1: of pediatric emergency is currently restricted to those that have done a fellowship. In the past, I think actually maybe the year before I started, they were allowing people that graduated with my type of residency to take the subspecialty board without a fellowship. And as far as I know, everybody that took it passed it, because our training is very similar to the fellowship training in terms of the types of rotations that we do and things and and, and in length. So for an EM physician, the fellowship is two additional years. And for a pediatric physician, it's an additional three-year fellowship.
0: So, you know, Naran's a pediatrician. So if Naran finished mm-hmm. her pediatrics residency and decided she wanted to become an emergency room pediatrician she would then have to do a fellowship in emergency medicine, which would be another two years. Is that correct?
1: Uh, No, another three years.
0: Another three years. And on top of her three-year residency that she already completed, and only then would she be credentialed. And I'm a family doctor, so there's no pathway for me, which is okay. I'm I'm happy with that. (laughs) But my point is that you have to go to a lot of training and education And it's very competitive to become a pediatric emergency physician. Yet we're seeing the pediatric emergency doctors being replaced in a lot of areas. And I guess it's not a particularly lucrative type of medicine for a lot of these hospitals. It's not a big earner, I guess.
1: Yes, this is the unfortunate reality that we're living in. We have been hearing stories of Pediatric emergency departments around the country closing, and it's sort of accelerated during COVID because pediatric volumes went down. And But even prior to COVID, this was happening. I remember a MedStar hospital in Baltimore that had closed, and that was before COVID. But they had closed the pediatric emergency department. The location where I work, which is a suburban emergency department, we still see about 60% Medicaid patients. So, and you know, the the majority of children that come there are seeking care for not necessarily emergency things, but sometimes just poor access to primary care. And then of course we do see emergencies also, but a lot of those non-emergent visits declined as children were staying home from school and not exposed to all the typical colds and viral infections. Do you think there's any element that
2: the rise of urgent cares
1: more recently are sort of pulling
2: away from that? And and I don't know, but it just seems to me that convenience of that uh, may be interfering with some of the volume. And it's interesting because I think some of the kids that are seen should be in an ER.
1: Yes. Yes. There's a mushrooming of urgent cares everywhere. And I think a lot of ERs are also suffering from decreased volumes because urgent cares do try to skim the cream off of the healthcare pot which are insured relatively healthy patients with minor conditions and so those patients are not seeking care in emergency departments which may be appropriate for them not to come to the emergency department but when a a pediatric patient goes to one of these places and sees somebody that is not trained in recognizing the needle in the haystack, you know, which in pediatrics, that's often the case is really knowing when to recognize when a child is sicker than what the surface seems. That is definitely one of the things that weighs heavily on my mind.
2: Yeah, I I wanted to share that it's not even always that they're sick. And I had a case last week where I guess whoever saw them at the urgent care, um, the child broke their nose actually, and it's displaced. <laughs> and I will say that I had to kind of finagle everything once once they came in to see me. But they they broke their nose, and whoever saw them said, "Oh no, we don't X-ray it because it's too swollen," and so they wanted <laughs> to wait for the swelling to go down. And and I thought, you know, I remember being trained, and we you know figure out if it's displaced rather quickly because children heal right. And so then you're in a situation after a week or two where the nose is now stuck in the wrong position and you have to reset it under anesthesia. You may even need to reset it anyway, but, you know, sometimes it's just these silly things that I think end up costing more than they need to, because I've never heard of don't get an x-ray on the nose when it's swollen because swelling doesn't affect the, (laughs) I I don't even understand what the reasoning was. So I I just said that can't possibly have been a doctor. There's no way it was a pediatrician.
0: Well, and that's what's happening, and that's what's happened in some of these hospitals where they're letting go of their pediatric emergency physician, and and instead, like these urgent cares, replacing them with nurse practitioners, either family nurse practitioners or pediatric nurse practitioners, both of whom are required to have 500 minimum hours of clinical experience. Compare that to what a pediatric emergency room (laughs) physician gets, which is got to be over 20,000 hours at least, probably quite a bit more than that. So of course, and then these ERs, they are having the adult emergency medicine physicians oversee these nurse practitioners, and it, it just doesn't make sense to me. And so what we want to get into now is why that really matters. And you wrote an amazing article, Mercy, called An Ode to the Differential Diagnosis. And I, I read that, and I was really struck by it. And it reminded me a lot about some of uh, parts of our book that, that Naran especially wrote Which has to do with why it's so important to to know how to to create a differential diagnosis. Can you explain to our audience what a differential diagnosis is? A differential diagnosis is a tool that
1: we are taught in medical school to, to create a list of possibilities for discerning certain symptoms that a patient presents with. For example, if a patient comes in with chest pain, a layperson may automatically assume that it's their heart. But a physician knows that it can be a variety of different problems. You have your heart, but you have your lungs, you have your esophagus, you have muscles and ribs and so many other organs in your chest, but also in other parts of your body that can give you pain in your chest. And the different types of conditions that can cause those symptoms may also vary by everything from age to comorbidities to medications time of year like you know time of day time of night there's so many different things that affect what go on our differential diagnosis and i i like to think that a differential diagnosis is almost like a fingerprint it may be different for every single physician if you gave a case to a room full of physicians you know, physicians with similar training might come up with very, very similar differential diagnoses. But each physician's personal experiences, what kinds of patients they've seen in the past may also cause their list to look different than somebody with the exact same training. So our differential diagnosis is really, like I said, in my essay is our calling card.
0: Yeah, you say that. And then you also point out, That you can only diagnose something that you can consider or something that you can think about or something that you remember or something that you know exists. And if you haven't studied it, if you haven't seen it in your limited experience, most likely as a physician, because of the number of hours and years that we put in, we have more opportunities to see and experience things, but also because our foundation is so strong and it helps us to think of what possible causes that can exist for different symptoms. And you point out that, you know, a lot of times physicians, we have to be thinking about the most serious possible causes. We can't just assume that something is just innocent. And you had actually a really interesting case in which you treated a baby that a, a nurse practitioner, I believe, had diagnosed with poison Ivy of the eye. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yes. I saw a very young infant and You know, ironically, this patient had been seen by a fourth year medical student in my that was rotating through my department. And the student came to me and said, I think this patient has basically told me a very serious viral infection that if it was true is a life threatening emergency in that age group and the very young infant age group. So I went to see this patient right away. And indeed, it looked pathognomonic for that type of viral infection. And testing for a baby with that suspected type of viral infection, it involves a lot of testing and involves admission to the hospital. It's a big deal. And testing confirmed our suspicion. But when I heard the backstory from the parent that this child had been seen at an urgent care and diagnosed with poison ivy, it just stunned me because that made no sense. There was this was a very young infant, hadn't been outside, you know, it was non-mobile. <laughs> and it just didn't make it didn't make any common sense. And thankfully, the mother of the child had the common sense to think this diagnosis of poison ivy doesn't make any sense. But that was those are the sorts of things that the nurse practitioner in the urgent care had seen before. And maybe it looked similar to what she'd seen before. And So that's the diagnosis that she made.
0: Yeah. I mean, if the only red rashes you've ever seen are poison ivy, that's probably going to be the first thing that jumps into your mind when you see a red rash. But as a pediatrician and and a pediatric emergency physician, you see a child with a red eye or a rash around their eye and your mind starts going to some certainly more likely explanations. And of course, you have to think about the most serious and deadly things because that's when you need to intervene. And one of the things that Naran and I discovered in our research was that non-physician practitioners are more likely to order tests and studies when they're not necessary, which is, you know, inconvenient and Mm. can cost the system a lot of money. But more worrisomely, they have a higher rate of non-intervention. In other words, when something is really going wrong, they are less likely to act probably because they may not recognize the seriousness
1: absolutely i'm working on another essay cuz i'm always working on <laughs> an essay
0: <laughs> and
1: one of the things that i write in this newest essay is that patients do not triage themselves correctly to urgent care so patients sometimes minimize their own symptoms you know wishful thinking hoping that their chest pain is not a heart attack and thinking oh it's just probably reflux so i'm going to go to urgent care the people that are at urgent care nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians, all alike should be able to recognize serious conditions and then know what to do. I heard recently from a colleague about a case where a patient presented there for chest pain to an urgent care for chest pain, an EKG was done, and it was very concerning for a, a STEMI or a ST elevation MI, so a big heart attack. And best case scenario for this would be that the person that recognizes this calls 911 to come and get this patient and rush them to the most appropriate emergency department. But instead, the nurse practitioner that was at that urgent care told the patient, you need to drive yourself to the closest emergency department. And the patient did that. But the place where they went was an emergency department that did not have a cath lab. So that emergency department then had to transfer the patient again, another more appropriate emergency department. And so there was delay in the best care. I heard that there was an adverse outcome for that patient. So because of the delay in care, it's not even just recognizing that it it is an emergency. It's knowing what, what to do about it, even if it means getting the patient to the best level of care, knowing how to do that
2: and i would say and and i'm sure you've experienced this which i would i would hear i think your perspective would be interesting on this idea of like a spidey sense or this idea of looking at a patient and just knowing something's wrong and um i often tell a story from residency where a kid was flown in from a location and I knew something was wrong. I just didn't know. I think I was like a second year resident. I was in the ICU. I was, and I remember calling cardiology and saying like, you need to come up. Something's wrong. I, I couldn't really formulate. Nobody was in the ICU for whatever reason. This was many, many years ago, more than 20 years ago. And I remember that it was a cardiology clinic PA who said, yeah, well, we're busy. And a kid was having a heart attack. Actually, they had an abnormality in their heart and their treatment that had been done previous had caused this heart attack. And they ended up on ECMO that night and, and they died. It's just a feeling. And I and I wish I could have even explained it. And that has happened to me time and time again. So I think it's experience. I think it's that 20,000 hours, but I, I'd love to hear your comments on that.
1: I want to tell a story also. Several years ago, I was working in the pediatric emergency department as an attending. I was probably only maybe three or four years out at that point, out of residency. And I had a, a young mother that brought her child in. It was the day after Thanksgiving. Her husband told her, "Don't t- don't take him to the emergency room. We'll we'll wait till next week. We'll get him seen." But she was really concerned that something was wrong, and her description was somewhat vague. She said, "He's been having trouble climbing up the stairs. At times, he seems kind of uncoordinated." And this was a child, you know, a preschool age child. So I looked at him and examined him, and I suddenly saw this very unusual movement of the eyes. And it hit me like a thunderbolt. I saw that and I'm getting chills even now talking about it because as soon as I saw that and the story of the difficulty with coordination, which I didn't see on exam, his neurologic exam, other than the eyes was normal. I thought, oh my gosh, I think this child has a neuroblastoma. I ordered an abdominal ultrasound and it confirmed what I was worried about. It was he had a mass arising from his adrenal glands. And, you know, a neuroblastoma can arise actually anywhere from anywhere along the length of the spine or in the brain. And I don't know what exactly made me think of his getting doing the ultrasound of his belly, probably because the patient that gave me this memory, this thunderbolt feeling had neuroblastoma in the abdomen also. But basically, when I was in residency, this long five-year residency, I saw a patient that had that syndrome, which is called opsoclonus myoclonus, and it's only 2 or 3% of patients with neuroblastoma that have that combination of symptoms. The patient in residency wasn't even my patient. It was a, a patient on a different service, but it was such an interesting case that they, somebody did a morning report about it. And I think the service that I was on was a consulting service. And I ended up seeing this patient and I read about it. So it wasn't even my patient, but I remember it so clearly many years later, you know, it had probably been five or six years since I saw the first patient. So that first patient, the memory of that first patient literally saved the second patient's life (laughs) because Uh I remembered and I, and it wasn't even conscious. You know, I I didn't at the time, I didn't re- remember why I remembered opsoclonus myoclonus. I just had that instantaneous, oh my gosh, I think this kid has neuroblastoma.
0: That is an amazing story. And you know, you talked in your article about the whole idea of how important it is to have this training and background when you're dealing with undifferentiated patients. And what you mean by that is that these are could be vague symptoms, like in this case, the child was just a little bit having a little bit of coordination problems, or maybe someone has fatigue, just something that's really general. And you can't follow an algorithm for that kind of a problem. And you talk about how mentally challenging it is to deal with undifferentiated patients. Noran likes to talk about how, there's really no studies that have been done where nurse practitioners or pAs evaluated an undifferentiated patient they always have you know the diabetic patient you know try to see what you can do with their blood sugar control or the patient with high blood pressure not these vague complaints which we get a lot of and i'm sure as a primary care doctor i get a lot of them and i'm sure you get a lot of them in the er too algorithms
1: have some use they do give a structure on how to approach A symptom or a problem, but the problem with algorithms is that they they have a box around them. They only capture a certain number of possibilities. And any physician, that's I mean, even medical students, we all know that patients' bodies don't read textbooks. So we will see unusual presentations of common problems. We will see common presentations of unusual problems, and we'll see unusual presentations of unusual problems. <laughs> so we have to keep a wide differential to be able to rule those out or rule those in. An algorithm is a sometimes an okay place to start, but lots of patients fall outside of the capability of the algorithms. And if you don't know what's outside of the box, you don't know that you need to keep looking.
0: Well, I think that's the key. And you wrote about that in your essay. You wrote that Even when we think we know the best diagnosis, the humble physician of any specialty is also aware that other possibilities exist, some of which have not been considered. This acknowledgement is what keeps physicians awake some nights. That is so true. I remember having a patient that just had this vague fatigue. She was depressed as well. But, you know, it seemed like it was more than just depression. And she just kept coming back. I'm just tired. And, you know, how often do we hear fatigue all the time? For the rest of the history, I couldn't pin it down. Physical exam was unremarkable. And I remember I was actually getting kind of frustrated because I I just didn't know how to help her. And something just stopped me from, you know, getting aggravated. And I just said to her, I don't know what's going on, but I'm not going to stop trying until we figure it out. And then that same night she had a seizure and she was diagnosed with a brain tumor and there was no other evidence of that. Or, but the point of it is that even we can't just say, well, it's just fatigue. You're just, you just depressed, or you just have this or that. I mean, that could be true, but it could turn out that there is something really serious going on that we haven't been able to think of because there's no other evidence for it. And you're right, it does keep us up at night. And or the times that we did miss something that you learn from, it really hurts us. I think as physicians, we worry about that. We feel badly about it.
1: We have to always balance what's the most common or what's the most likely, what's the most cost-effective way of that coming to a diagnosis. We're juggling all these different, these different balls. And we, you know, so sometimes I'll see a patient that comes into the ED for something that. I'm, you know, pretty sure it's not an emergency issue. I mean, that's my my job is to make sure that I don't discharge anybody with an emergency condition. But, you know, there's like a nagging feeling of, oh, could it be this? I didn't do that test because, you know, that's not typically something we do in the ER, but I hope that patient gets follow-up soon and gets the appropriate care. So I often will actually call patients back and they are always surprised to hear from the ER doctor. But one, I want to make sure that they made appropriate follow-up. And two, I sometimes I'm just curious, my my medical curiosity of, well, what happened to this? Like, you know, what was the the diagnosis in the end? So yes, I absolutely know that there are things that I, I don't know. I don't remember. I look up things all the time and I'm 20 years out from medical school. I, I mean, sometimes I'll remember kind of, oh, there's a condition I think something like this and I'll get on a reference and, and look it up. I love working with medical students because sometimes they will actually bring up things in their differential diagnosis that I hadn't ever, (laughs) that I wouldn't ever consider normally that sometimes I would have to look up because I'm not even sure if I remember it. So I love having medical students.
2: I, and I essentially was going to kind of ask, because it sounds like you sort of, I, I work these things out in my dreams. What's strange is I'll wake up in the morning and be like, oh my gosh, I got to order that test. And I don't even, I don't even think I'm aware of what's hanging on my brain overnight, but I literally, I it's countless times I call the person like you do the next day. I just can't, like something doesn't fit. It's just a puzzle that's unfinished. So my question was going to be about, you know, on the one hand, we talk about not being able to sleep or these unfinished questions that weigh on our minds. And yet with the corporatization of medicine, they're just pushing people through. I definitely don't think the CEO of a hospital is like, Johnny, oh my gosh, Johnny, what happened? I want to know what happened with your fever. And so I just kind of want to ask, You know, I I don't know if you're like what you can say about being part of a corporation, because I don't know what you're involved in or who you work for. But I guess I would just say over the last 20 years, how have you seen it change?
1: Oh man. Yes. There's certainly more mentality of Treat them and street them, (laughs) you know, get them through a lot more emphasis on metrics, seeing a certain number of patients, seeing them in a certain amount of time without necessarily being able to give the type of attention that is needed to properly diagnose somebody. And, you know, a big thorn in my side is the EHR, which takes away time and attention from physicians. I am awful about my... (sighs) Keeping up with my documentation. So, honestly, like I sacrifice my personal time to chart after my shifts very often so that I can actually look at people in the face and spend enough time with them that I feel comfortable that I've gotten the information that I need to from the best source, which is the patient. Corporations don't like to reimburse for that because I'm not being efficient. <laughs> but if I but if I didn't do that I couldn't make the right diagnosis. So I feel like the you know the types of quality measures that they look for are not the types of things that I as a patient or as a physician would consider quality
0: care. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about when I was in my training which was about 20 years ago as well how the emergency room doctors used to use those T-sheets, which were just a piece of paper with a checklist for all the different complaints that a person might walk in for. So cold symptoms or broken bone, and they would just go through and just check, 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 check off the paper and their documentation would be done in just minutes. And of course, now we have to log into a system and click this and click that and alarm fatigue. And it's really detracted from your time. So many doctors now are working after hours and giving up their personal time, and it's really not necessarily providing any better care. I would say, as far as evidence-based medicine, there is probably no evidence that the EHR helps, and I'd probably find a lot of evidence that it hurts. Now, Noreen is still on paper, and I am am direct primary care, so my EHR is made for me, and it's more like just a quick Word document. But when you work for these companies and you're getting paid by third parties, you've got to hit all the meaningful use. I call it meaningless use, but all this nonsense. In fact, I get a lot of ER notes back and I see so much garbage in them. I mean, I'm sure you must just be tortured by this because there'll be pages of just nonsense. And then I'm, I'm going, I'm going through the pages until I finally find that little nugget of important information. That's just got to drive you crazy to, to be doing that.
1: Yes. And, you know, in the ER, most of our patients are people that we are seeing for the first time. So going through all of that with each patient, don't get me wrong, we do need to find out what their past medical history and their medications and we need to know all of those things. But having to click, 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 click a million boxes to enter all of that information in is soul-sucking.
0: Well, yeah, and you don't (laughs) need to necessarily know if they wear their seatbelts, if they're coming in for a cold. I mean, if they're coming in for a car accident, uh, yeah, then I'd like to know if they were wearing their seatbelt. But, you know, the the system forces you to basically a one-size-fits-all approach, which just turns doctors into data entry clerks, and it's a really poor use of resources. And you point out in your article that it's actually a major cause of physician burnout because one of the things that doctors really like is using our cognitive skills, coming up with that differential diagnosis. And so you say here, the lack of opportunity to use our hard-earned cognitive expertise to help patients leads to resentment, burnout, and moral injury. And I think that's a really good point that you make.
1: Yeah, I think being rushed to see, I mean, in the emergency room, you know, that's part of emergency medicine is, is sometimes being rushed and sometimes making very fast decisions, but it doesn't help that we also have all of these other requirements on us, the EHR, the the door to doctor time, the door to discharge time, the door to admission time, like, you know, there's so many of these metrics. And patient Um,
0: satisfaction. Don't forget about that. Press gamey. And did the, you know, is the patient have a good experience through all this? Oh, I can't tell you how detrimental I think that actually is to patient care. There's actually
1: studies. Do you guys know that the most satisfied patients are the most likely to have about bad outcome? They have increased morbidity and mortality. So patients don't always know what's best for them. And, you know, there has to be a balance sometimes between patient autonomy, physician autonomy, and paternalism. I mean, we're the ones that have the information about health conditions. And, you know, I, I, you know, sometimes patients need tough love. They need to know, just like, you know, in a parent relationship, obviously paternalism, that that drug is not the right one for you, or uh, you've had enough of that, (laughs) that one. And so those patients tend to be the ones that complain. But yes, when there is an emphasis on patient satisfaction, prioritizing that above good quality care, that's a problem. When physicians reimbursement is tied to patient Satisfaction—that is a problem. There's a conflict of interest there, so I don't think that the, those are all things that are very have become much more predominant in emergency medicine in the last twenty years.
0: There's so many more things that I would love to talk with you about. I just want to put in a quick plug because we're wrapping up, just to let our listeners know that if you want to read a couple of really awesome articles, you should go to Kevin MD and look at Mercy Hilton's her articles. One I love was "Dear Interns, We Have Your Backs," so where she talks about how every July the memes are "Don't get sick in July," you know. You'll the in, the interns will kill you, and she points out correctly that those interns happen to have a lot of hours and they're being highly supervised, so that's just nonsense. And then the other article that had over sixty five thousand shares, which is amazing, was "We are not expendable. We are not replaceable." Talking about how emergency physicians and, and nurses were treated during the COVID nineteen pandemic, as far as personal protective equipment. So I'd love to have you back to talk about those things. But unfortunately, right now we're out of time. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Mercy Hilton for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, the Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Please subscribe to our podcast Patients at Risk in our YouTube channel. And if you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about helping out, Please join Physicians for Patient Protection, our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.